welcome to another episode of the ABBA podcast with John McDonald. Thank you for tuning in. We really do appreciate your support. John would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send all comments and questions on Twitter at ABBA podcast. You can also keep in touch with the Facebook page, the ABBA podcast. Podcast episodes can be downloaded from Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify and many of the usual platforms. If, however, you're unable to find ABBA podcast on your favourite platform, let us know and we'll do our best to get this added. All right, we're going to talk about um, my story. You know, when I was growing up, uh, I was into just about every fashion you could think of that was going. That's how it seemed anyway to my parents. And a lot of growing up, you know, the music we listened to and the fashion we wore kind of went together. So in the glam rock time, it was flares and platforms that we wore. For a time, it was all about having our clothes made to measure. So I had made to measure trousers and suits and coats and waistcoats, even shirts and sweaters that I had made to measure. My first made to measure sweater cost me £2.50. That's how long ago it was. During punk, it, I just got all of my old school clothes and repurposed them, uh, kind of did them myself. As mods, it was two-tone suits. And, and then in New Romantics, it, it was the frilly shirts, flamboyant hair. Before we moved on to the funk music, and and zip suits, hand-painted silk ties. That was really what our life revolved around. It revolved around fashion and music. But when I was young, that's not what life was like. I, I grew up in a very working-class family in a working-class part of Glasgow. Um, I grew up in the housing schemes, or you know, in America, the projects, if you like. A lot of poverty. There were times when my mum didn't have enough food for all of the family. So she would go without just so that her, her three children could have something to eat. My dad was disabled for very quickly after I was born in 1961. He was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. It began with his, his eyesight being affected. Eventually, over a very short period of time, he lost all mobility. He lost control of his, his nervous system, so he, he had no ability to use his hands or, or, or arms. And even his speech was affected. His speech was very difficult to understand, um, which was very tough for him and for us as a family. And so my mum has this disabled husband and three young children. Bearing in mind, when I was born, my dad was was not yet 21 years old. My mom was not yet 22 years old. So they were very young. Uh, and because of the situation of, of my dad's disability and, and the poverty, there was no real quality time for us as individuals. In fact, my mom mentioned recently that it's one of her regrets that she wasn't able to give us that time and attention that really children require. And as I grew up, I did the things for my dad that dads do for their children. I 
I brushed his teeth. I spoon-fed him his, his meals. I, I poured the drinks into his mouth. He died when I was 11 years old. He was only 32 years old. I was devastated. And around that time, I would wake up in the middle of the night, bathed in sweat, because I knew I wasn't going to heaven. I just knew I had not done enough to, to merit going to heaven. I was going to spend millions and millions of years of, in purgatory and perhaps get to heaven one day, if, if ever. Uh, and even I remember at times trying to pray to my dad even and asking my dad to, to try and speak to God for me. Because I thought, my dad suffered so much in this life that surely he must have gone straight to heaven for all of his suffering. It's crazy, I know, but that's where I was around 11 years old. When I began to, to head towards high school, my lifestyle began to get a little bit wilder. I began to get involved with gangs, and that ended up with me learning about alcohol, drinking cheap wine and cheap beer, uh, getting into a lot of fights, a lot of violence. Um, and th this background of music and fashion and everything else that, that went along with it. I guess as I grew up, I, I lived a very orphan lifestyle. I just looked out for me. I didn't care about anyone else. And I tell you, it's not a happy way to live your life. That much I, I do know. Um, and so it was always just about what can I get out of this? What do I get? What can other people give me? And I wasn't really making attachments or, or, or real connected relationships. In fact, if people were getting close to me, friends or, or romantic relationships, I would break them off um, because they bring pain. People hurt you. I, I learned that very, very young, very early on. And so I wanted to avoid being hurt. And so I didn't make any real attachments or real connections. I always made sure I had different options for friends so that if, if I felt threatened in this group, then I could jump to this group and back and forward. You know, the fact is we're born with open hearts. You know, or as little babies, our hearts are open to receive love, to experience the world around us. We absorb life from whatever interactions we have with others and with our environment. And children, especially babies, they just they seem to draw love and affection from people around them. And it's from those around them that children learn about love, about their own lovability. When people pour that affection and love upon them, they learn about their own worth. And they learn about their own belonging, their own acceptance. But if that example is not there, or if it's only there in little bits and pieces, what happens then? I believe that what happens then is that children learn to close their hearts. When love is not present in sufficient amounts, then it leaves a wound, it leaves a, a void. And in order to, to deflect attention from that void, and instead of gazing inwards in that void and, and falling into it even, the, black, the blackness of it, then we learn to close our hearts. And the Bible speaks about not closing our hearts. You know, in Proverbs 4, verse 23, the writer says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. 
Let me read that again from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And I puzzled, I puzzled for a long time about what that means. But I realized that guarding my heart for me now is to resist the things that cause me to, to harden my heart, that cause my heart to shut down. Things like cynicism. If someone's nice to me and I become suspicious, why are they being nice to me? That's cynicism. And it, it hardens our heart. It makes us resistant to love. It makes me resistant to love, certainly. And scepticism, you know, when people say, you know, God is good. And you might say with your voice, yeah, amen. But inside, somewhere in your heart, you're saying, yeah, not to me. Is God really good to me? That's scepticism. And, you know, these things harden your heart. It's not that having a hard heart is, is, means you're wicked. It means that you've closed your heart up to avoid depth and intimacy. I think it's why some people, so many people struggle with spirituality, because spirituality is, is a heart language. And if we've disconnected ourselves from our hearts, like I did growing up, then we find spirituality a very difficult thing to, to, to grasp. You know, when, when love is not present, and love is not present in sufficient quantities, these things, cynicism, skepticism, sarcasm, they, these things fill the void, and they create a heart that is resistant to love, to intimacy, to tenderness, to, to kindness, to gentleness. You know, my heart had closed up and I'd hardened it because life was painful. And growing up, life was very confusing. I couldn't understand why. Why is my dad ill? Why is my dad not been able to be my dad? Why is my little brother having to go to hospital all of the time? Why are we poor? Why, why do I not have the things my friends have? It was all very confusing. And the only way to avoid the pain and the confusion was to close my heart and to find a way to hide from the world around me. As a small child, I found that in reading, uh, in books, in magazines, in papers. I would read anything just that I could shut the world out. As I grew up and became a teenager, it was all about being cool. And I don't just mean being hip and trendy in, in clothes and music. But being cool, being unaffected by the things around me or pretending not to be affected by things around me, whether it was loss of a relationship or something bad happened or lost a, a job or something, pretend to be unaffected. And actually, that kind of persona makes it very difficult for people to approach you and get to know you, which was part of the, the ploy. Again, in teenage years, alcohol, drugs, sex, these were things that I could use to mask pain, use to mask fear, uh, to, to hide my vulnerability. Because you couldn't be vulnerable growing up in the, in the, in the ways that I grew up, in the, the housing areas that I grew up. To be vulnerable was to be weak, and to be weak was to become a victim. And I experienced some of that in younger years when I'm being bullied by older boys. You know, and it's not, it wasn't pleasant. So I learned to, to cover up and not allow myself to be a victim anymore. I became aggressive and, and loud. 
and cool and unaffected. Growing up through primary school, early school years, I, I just I only remember praise in my life for my academic achievement. I would get, I was a very intelligent kid. Uh, I would get great, really good grades. You know, I was in competition for the ducks of the school, which is like the best academic student in the in the in the school. I didn't quite make it, but um, I was I was in contention for that. Uh, and so I got great praise and great admiration for that. And I got a, a measure of acceptance for my sporting ability. I played football or soccer, for those of you on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, I played rugby. I also was a sprinter in my younger years. I won a couple of medals in, in sprinting. But what these things taught me about the praise for my academic achievements and the measure of acceptance for sporting ability, I learned about performing. And I learned that I can use knowledge, intelligence, to impress people. And so that's, I lived my life a lot like that, and I didn't realize that how much, I was probably a real pain in the behind to a lot of people. Because I would correct people when they got things wrong. No, no, that's not what it is. Or I would just spout off things that I knew. Because I wanted to outdo others. I wanted to be higher than other people. And I thought this would do it. But it only did it in my own mind. It didn't do it in other people's minds. In 1985, I met the girl that I, was, I would marry, and still married to now, Fiona. And through our courtship, about, I don't know, probably eight months into our courtship, we both became believers on the same day, not, not knowing to each other. And this really scared me because this was, was the first time I knew God to speak, if you like. I mean, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. I was an altar boy and a little bit religious. But I abandoned all that when my dad died. And God was just, he was there. I'm not quite sure what he was. At one point, I thought he might have been an astronaut or a, from an alien planet. But that's a whole other story. I write a little bit about that in my book, um, Love to Life. But anyway, uh, I didn't pray the classic prayer or I just remember bowing my head in this church service that I attended with Fiona and her family and saying, God, I've tried everything else. I've tried sex and drugs and rock and roll and politics. And here I am. I nowhere else to go. And I remember at the end of the service, everyone was going back to Fiona's family. So not the whole church, just the family. Um, and before I left the church, I, I had this really strong impression. I have to tell my wife we need to stop sleeping together. Uh, my girlfriend, sorry. Um, I have to tell my girlfriend that we need to stop sleeping together. Now, that was crazy because that's not the life I lived. I lived a very hedonistic life. And it was all about the sex and drugs and rock and roll. It really was. And before I met my wife, I was very promiscuous. Because that's what life is for, as far as I was concerned. So for me to have this thought that um, I should stop sleeping with her just seemed ludicrous. But all the way back to her home, um, this thought persisted. And so when I, we got to her mom's house and 
I can't remember how it happened, but we were both in the kitchen alone. And we both said to each other, we need to stop sleeping together. Now that really freaked me out because I thought, well, that's not a coincidence. God really is real. And that's when I, I believe that God still speaks today. And so I became a believer. I went to a church um, in the south side of Glasgow with a lot of friends who had been in drugs and gangs. We were a bit of a ragtag group. And I started living a Christian life. Whatever, I don't know what your concept of a Christian life is, but when I became a believer, I kind of lived the same ways I had previously. I mean, I stopped drinking and drugs and all of that stuff. And, my, and Fiona and I stopped sleeping together. But I, I lived with the same attitude. I thought that performance and knowledge were still my strong areas. And actually the system of Christianity that I had been born again into, the system of Christianity that I was immersing myself in, encouraged me to believe that, that knowledge and performance were positive attributes in Christian living. You know, Christian activity, service, knowing the scriptures, doing the kingdom business, these are the things that I focused on and was encouraged to focus on almost exclusively. I walked around with pockets full of, of Christian tracts and a Bible in my other back pocket and, and trying to badger people about Jesus. And when I look back, it, I am embarrassed, actually, by some of it. And as I look back, not just in those years, but through the years as a believer, it seems to me that, that busyness is like a merit badge. You know, you're recognized as a good Christian because of your performance, because of your Bible knowledge, because of the amount of service you put in, because of the amount of scripture you can quote in the prayer meeting. And it seems to be that that's a lot of what our Christianity has been based upon. But to me, anyway, that's how it seems. And I, I used to admire busyness. I used to admire frantic activity. But I've come to realize that busyness, my busyness, certainly, and I think busyness for a lot of other people, is just a hiding place. It's just another way to deflect attention from what you perceive as your weaknesses. It allows you to keep intimacy at arm's length and everything stays out here and never reaches in here. You know, the life I, I knew as a child missed out on a lot of comfort. I never told my mom or my grandmother, who, who spent a lot of time looking after us, I never told them about things that happened to me and the pains that I felt and the the beatings that I received or the horrible things that I did. And actually, I needed comfort because of a lot of those things. I never received it. I needed displays of affection that were not forthcoming. Not because no one cared or, or no one loved me, but the energy that it took just to help the family to stay together and survive life, it left no more energy for displays of affection and comfort. And so I was ignorant about love. I was ignorant about affection. I knew sex, but I didn't know love. You know, when I was first married, um, we married in September 1986, and for some time, um, there would be periods where my wife would embrace me in bed at night, and I would just freeze up, and I would say, please don't touch me. And my poor wife didn't know what was going on. Actually, at the time, I didn't know what was going on. It's only a reflection upon spending time with the Lord and receiving some healing 
And I've, I've understood that I didn't know what to do with love. My wife in, in embracing me was offering me affection, comfort, love. And I didn't know what to do with those things. Those things threatened the, the stronghold that I built up around my heart to protect me from pain and, and disappointment. And it's a long story and I won't go into it, into it, but over the years that has been broken down and my heart has learned to receive comfort and affection and love. It's been a process, but it started with my wife wanting to love me and comfort me and show her affection to me and me not knowing what to do with it. It cost her a lot of pain and it took a lot to help her get through that too. Again, it's another story. I'm sorry. <laughs> there just isn't, isn't enough time to tell every detail in this um, episode. But, you know, when I became a believer, I, I came out of a party lifestyle. I was running a nightclub. And so I was used to being up all night and in bed during the day. And so now I'm, I, I stay quite often in Fiona's home. I, I, I sleep in her brother's bedroom. And I'm still awake all night because my body is in that rhythm of life. And so I start to read. And I, I spend hours and hours reading the Bible. And I remember in those early days reading a, a passage of scripture in Matthew's gospel. It's in Matthew chapter 23, verse 9. And this is what I read. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Now, I read that, and having grown up, as I said, in the Roman Catholic Church, I read this as a brand new believer, and what it said to me was, calling the priest father is wrong. You have one father, he's in heaven. And so, in my narrow-mindedness, and to be frank, in the, the kind of brand of Christianity that I was being exposed to, it it solidified for me that Roman Catholicism is wrong, it's bad. I don't believe that now, but that was my mindset back then, back in the 1980s. And so I took that on, do not call anyone on earth father. And I translated that as Catholicism is wrong. But I was ignorant of what God was really trying to say to me. His focus was on him being a father to me. That's what he was trying to tell me. John, I'm your father in heaven. But I focused on the religious thing. Do not. It's what I grew up with. You know, my mom would say, don't hang out with those boys. No, I don't want you going there. Don't touch that. Leave that alone. Don't, don't say that. And don't think that either. You know, and so it's what I was learning in my new faith as well. You know, so much of life and faith was based on that principle. Don't touch, don't say that, don't think that, don't do that, don't behave like that, don't go there, don't go here. And, you know, it was all based on being a good or a bad Christian. But I've come to realise, no, let me go back. It's based on being a good Christian or a bad Christian. And that is how I try to live my life. I try to learn the things that make me a good Christian. And I try to ignore the things that make me a bad Christian. I try to put them away, but it's, it's an exhausting way of living. It's, 
a painful way of living because I came to over and over again to a place where I failed and I failed and I failed. And I just thought, I need to try harder. I need to perform better. But the wonderful thing about coming to know Father's love is that I've discovered he's not interested in whether I'm a good Christian or a bad Christian. He's not interested in how much of the Bible I know, how much of the Bible I've memorized. I've understood that that's the way we judge one another. That's how human beings judge one another. It's, it's a result of Adam eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We live with the effect of Adam eating from that tree. Because when he ate from the tree, he judged himself by a standard that had not been set for him by God. You see, he looked at his nakedness and sought to cover it up. He said, the standard now for him was, nakedness is not acceptable. I cannot come before God with no clothes on. But for however long he'd been living in the garden, he'd always been naked before God. He'd always approached God with no clothes on. Something changed. and. His faculty for judgment became warped and, and twisted. His vision and understanding of what is good and right was skewed. And so he began to judge his outward appearance. And so that's how we judge one another. Outward appearance, it's how I judge people. I judge them by my standard of what is good and what is not good which I thought was God's standard, but it's not. It's never been his standard. It's actually the standard that we learned from Adam. You know, Samuel, the prophet, he goes to anoint the next king of Israel after Saul. And the Lord says to him to have the, the sons of, of Jesse all lined up. It's at first Samuel 16. And the Lord sees David's eldest brother. And he said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And the Lord said, no, I've not chosen him. He said, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, which is what Adam did when he saw his nakedness. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So much of my Christianity focused on behavior. And God was not, he was focusing on my heart because my heart is a place where life is experienced. It's the place where life flows or life doesn't flow. It's where love is experienced or not experienced. That's what the writer of Proverbs 4 is getting at when he said, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Some versions say from it springs life. But the problem is, most of us don't know our own hearts. You know, when I, I remember attending a, a weekend retreat and something happened, I can't remember what the speaker was saying, but all of this pain of my dad, losing my dad at 11 years old, all came up in my heart. And it just felt I couldn't get around it. I couldn't get over it. And so I spoke to one of the, the course leaders and he said, you know, you need to let go of your dad. If you want to move on with God, you need to let your dad go because it's almost as though you're still a, somewhere in your heart. You're still 11 years old, holding on to your dad and not willing to let go. I said, but if you want to move on with God, you need to let your dad go. And so we went into this little room to pray. Um, 
And I, I thought I could do this, but this is easy. So I bow my head and I, and I can't say anything. Nothing will come out. And this man is just gently encouraging me. John, it's okay. Your dad's not angry. He knows that you need to let him go so that you can move on with God. But I just couldn't say anything. And then this man said, you know, John, just let your dad go. God wants to be your father. And I exploded. And I said, no, you took my dad from me. You're not taking his place. That shocked me. Because I had no idea that attitude was in my heart. From my dad being ill and dying, I held it against God. I was a church leader at the time. And here's this thing in my heart manifesting itself and defiance of God. I, would, I spent my whole Christian life trying to get close to God, trying to be holy, trying to be intimate with, with the Lord and get to know him. And I couldn't because something in my heart wouldn't let it happen. And it was a little boy's voice saying, you took my dad from me, you can't take his place. And so God could not be who he wanted to be to me. I was resisting God. And I had no idea I was doing that. I think so many of us have that problem in our, our hearts and our lives. We're resisting aspects of God's love and character and nature being manifested to us and in us. And we're not even aware that we're resistant because of these things in our hearts, because of the, the protections and barriers and attitudes that have been built up through life's experiences. And they're all stored up in our hearts. And then we lock the door to stop anything else getting in or anything getting out. And we're frustrated. We don't understand, why am I not moving on in my Christian life? Well, because there are things in our hearts which prevent us they act as blockages, they act as roadblocks. And we just keep running up against them time and time again. And I've realized for all, the, all of the healing I've been through, I've realized that the greatest thing for removing those blockages and those roadblocks in my life has been the love of the Father. That has been the key in my spiritual life. and still is the key in my spiritual life. Because you see, God is interested in relationship. We've boiled the whole thing down to saying a prayer and then living according to certain standards and certain rules, many of which are unspoken, actually, which adds to the confusion and the feelings of failure that we go through. But relationship isn't a system. A relationship built upon rules and, and systems, it's conditional, it's fear-inducing. You're afraid to get it wrong because you'll lose your relationship or you'll get punished, and you need to try and fix it and work harder to make it, make it better. That's not how relationship works. Relationship is something organic that comes out of spending time with people. But we've instituted systems which clearly do not work for us. Certainly they haven't worked for me. What we see in the Garden of Eden is father and son with sharing times of intimacy and love. Because that's what he intends for all of mankind. Adam and his wife in the garden is the blueprint for humanity. Luke chapter 3, verse 38. I, I, you'll hear me referencing this verse again and again. In Luke chapter 3, verse 38, at the end of the genealogy of Jesus, it says, Adam, the son of God. See, that is God's purpose for humanity. 
that we would all know ourselves to be as sons and daughters. And I'm, I, I've done an interview with Trevor Galpin about the whole sonship issue, and that's going to be the, the subject of a, a later podcast, so look out for that coming up. You know, when we make Christianity about behaviour, then we're saying that the love of the Father, God's love, is conditional upon our behaviour. God only loves us if we get it right. But see, relationship is not a behaviour issue. It's primarily a heart issue. We have this idea that when we do it wrong, we can't be loved until we fix it and put it right. Because our experience in life is that we are evaluated according to our usefulness. It's how people gauge us. It's how we gauge other people. We look at them according to usefulness for our purposes, for our organization, for our, our churches. There I say it. But God the Father doesn't evaluate us on the basis of our usefulness to. Because love doesn't function that way. Love is not based upon how beneficial someone can be to, to our purposes. If a relationship is based on that, there's no love in it. Get out of that kind of relationship. Because love doesn't function on that basis. True relationship, loving someone is not based upon their behavior. It is something that is actually in your own heart. And in God's heart for you and for me is love. That's it. It's not based upon what we can do for him or what he gets out of us. His heart is purely and simply love for you. Love for me. It's not based upon functionality or behavior or usefulness. That's how we judge one another. God does not judge according to our standards. In Jeremiah, we see the heart of God. And I've begun to understand this more and more. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19. The prophet is speaking the voice of Yahweh. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you as my children and give you a pleasant land. The most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. You see, the heart of God filled with love, is for, for a family to relate as father and children. But humanity has not understood that. Humanity wanted a king, so he gave them a king. Humanity wanted to be like the other nations with gods and laws, and so he gave them laws like the other nations had. Not because he wanted them to live according to law, but because he wanted them to be in relationship with him. And if their condition of relationship was laws and structures and systems, then he would submit himself to that in order to maintain the relationship. The humility of God in this is incredible. The same humility that caused him to become a man and die on a cross so that we could come to him once again. God sent prophets and priests, kings and poets, but none of them could convey his heart to the people. And so finally he sent his son, because the son, Jesus, is the only one who could properly, properly represent him. The only one who could truly reveal the Father's love for us, as it is, not as we think it is. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1 of, the, of Hebrews, 
In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, he spoke through the son because all of the others, all of the kings and prophets and priests and judges, they could only represent him imperfectly. They could only, as Paul says, see dimly as in a mirror darkly. But from their perfect, imperfect, sorry, communication, we have developed many strange ideas about God. But Son, Jesus, is the exact representation of the invisible Father. The Son is the final revelation of what God is like. Jesus, in the four Gospels, is the last word on the nature and character of God the Father. And so I have come to a, a conclusion that if it doesn't look like or sound like Jesus, then it's not from God. I don't care how spiritual sounding something is, but if it does not look like or sound like Jesus, then I don't believe it can be from God. There may be elements of it from God, but it's mixed with everything else. All of the brokenness of the man or the woman that, that the words are coming through. You see, when we live and relate to God through systems and rules, we come up with some really bizarre ideas. Perhaps you remember the whole, what would Jesus do, creeds? We had the bracelets, what would Jesus do, WWJD, and lots of other paraphernalia. But it's a silly question, isn't it? You can't live a relationship that way by asking what someone else would do. Especially when Jesus himself said, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. <laughs> Jesus is saying, nothing I do originates in me. I only do what I see father doing. So to ask what would Jesus do is a silly question because he doesn't know what he would do until father tells him. He says in John 8, I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. In John 12, he says, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. That is phenomenal. You see, Jesus is always pointing us to the Father. And as I began to see this in scripture, I began to look towards Father, like, okay, Father, how do I do this? How do I do this walk? And Jesus' ministry was marked by that philosophy, if you like. He had such intimacy with and love for his Father that he did nothing of his own inspiration or ideas. See, Jesus, we see in the Gospels, was who he was because of his relationship with Father. And I realized if I want to be like Jesus in my relationship, with Father needs to be like Jesus' relationship with Father. I began to see this is why Jesus came. He came to bring us to that place of relationship with his Father. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's speaking about himself as the journey way, the roadway, the pathway, or elsewhere he calls himself the gate. He is the, the way to the destination. And when so when we talk about following Jesus. Where are we following him to? Well, it's to this destination, the Father. John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. That is Christianity. A journey to a destination. Jesus is the way. The destination is his Father. In 2 Corinthians 6.18, Paul loosely um, quoting the Old Testament, he says, the Lord says, I will be a father to you. And I read that and I thought, what's that? I have no concept of what a father is. I have no father relationship. But I realized that what he was saying when I read that was, John, I will do the things that your biological dad couldn't do for you. That blew my mind wide open. Because I had a dad who was not able to express love to me. Not because he was cruel or unkind, but because he was disabled and locked into a dark, um, physically restrictive place. He didn't give me um, presents. He didn't come and watch me playing soccer. He wasn't able to do these things. And so many of us had fathers who were not able to express love and affection for us. They were absent, they were violent, they were abusive. And so we didn't know what it was like to be father. You know, I never knew a father's love and affection and affirmation. And there's something in the human heart that needs to hear a father's approval. I think there's something that was happening at Jesus' baptism where that took place. In his human heart, he heard and felt his father's affirmation and affection. This is my son whom I love, and him I'm well pleased. You know, Bert Lancaster, the actor, for those of you under 40, look him up, Google, Bert Lancaster. He, his father was the, the local town sheriff. And Bert was a, a rough, tough guy in, in Hollywood. He liked to drink, he liked to fight. He, he had lots of, of beautiful women on his arm. And he was asked on a number of occasions, you know, what, what is it that makes a man a man? Because he was everyone's idea of a man's man. And he said, you know, we have a saying in the deep south of America. You're not a man until your father says you are. And on a couple of occasions, he followed that statement up, up with another statement. This is the follow-up statement. He said, my father never told me, and that has always been a problem. You see, the human heart wants to know a father's approval, a father's love. And it's not been our experience to have that, to have him say, I love you, I'm proud of you. And so we grew up with this idea that something is wrong with who we are. And we build a religious system around that to try and fill, the, a vo fill a void that it can never fill because that void is the absence of love. And so God comes and says, I will be a father to you. I will be the father you've never known and you shall be my sons and daughters. You see, I've, I've come to understand that sonship, daughterhood to God, it's not about what we do or how obedient we are. That's, that's not what it's based upon. It's based upon him loving us and fathering us. And his love and his fathering shapes us into the sons and daughters that we've wanted to be all of our Christian lives. You see, when we make it about our obedience and, and the things we do, our performance, and that's, that's us returning to conditional love. That's us returning to a transactional kind of relationship. I do this, then God will do that. And he doesn't love us on that basis. See, what he's doing in this day, 
this revelation is leading us back to the place that Adam lost, a place where we live in the center of his affections, dwelling in love, and love that is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and transforms us from the inside out, from the heart. And that's a, that's a transformation that can never come from religious performance, religious systems or religious practices. You know, I had come to a dry place with my religious performance, with my performance, my knowledge, and everything else. And I went to uh, a one-month-long kind of retreat in Toronto in 2005 with my wife. There were about 50 or 60 other people there. And during this month, there was a week uh, where James Jordan and Denise Jordan from Father Heart Ministries came and spoke about Father's love. You know, it was one of the most painful weeks of my life because as they began to unpack what the Bible teaches about the Father, I began to realize all that I lost as a little boy, all that I missed out on and all of this pain coming up and anger coming with it and frustration. And, you know, in fact, in one session, I actually left the session and I went and hid in an alcove in that church. And I cursed everyone in that room. I cursed the speakers. I was so full of pain. And I didn't know what to do with it. You see, I began to realize all that I missed out on as a little boy. I began to realize all of the areas where I had a deficit in love. And realize and see my, the poverty of my attempts to fill up that deficit on my own. Through sex, drugs, rock and roll, money, fashion, music. But no matter what I did, it remained an empty place. It remained a void because it was made for love and wealth. And we all have a deficit. You know, the world recognizes it. You think about the movies we watch with all the, the themes of fathers and daughters and fathers and sons. Watch, watch out in it for it in the movies that you watch. I'm not going to go through all the, all the bunch of movies. And so... I began a journey in that week um, dealing with true forgiveness. I thought I'd forgiven a lot, but, but as I write in my book, forgiveness is so much bigger than I ever learned it was in Christianity. And the Lord took me through a lot of that. And so I was sitting, I'd come home from Toronto at the end of July 2005. And about three or four weeks later, towards the end of August, I'm sitting in my spare room. Uh, preparing my sermon for the next morning. I was a pastor at the time. Um, when the room filled up with his presence, and so I put aside my notes and I sat there. I don't know how long it was. I think when you're truly in the presence of God, there is no time. It can be a moment and you've spent a couple of hours. It can be a couple of hours and, and actually you've only spent a moment. Time loses any meaning. And so as I sat there, as he drew near, I just felt the warmth of his presence and, and the gentleness of his presence. And somehow he managed to open a place in my heart that had been closed for almost 50 years. And he just said to me, son. I said, son. I wept, wept. I have wept a lot over the years with healing. But this 
these tears, these were a relief. You know, I had spent so many years with God saying, God, if you're good, why didn't, why, why was I born and my dad became sick? Was that my punishment because I was conceived outside of marriage? Did you punish us because of that sin? No, he didn't. But I asked all of those questions. God, if you're good, why didn't you heal my dad and give me a dad and give me a, a, a proper grown-up experience? But when he called me son, when he just said to me, son, he never answered those questions. Questions just became irrelevant. You see, I was looking for intellectual questions, but it was actually my heart that needed answers. <laughs> And I've understood that intellectual answers to heart questions never satisfy us. And so with that revelation that I am his son, and I've had lots of, of things since then, visions and pictures and experiences. And it's different for each one of us. You know, our experience of, of knowing ourselves as sons and daughters is different for each one of us. But growing in sonship, I've been realizing this is what I was created for, to live my life, not, not to live a Christian life, just to live the life of John MacDonald, but as a son to God the Father. You see, previously I thought being a son was, was doing the business, doing the kingdom business, but now I realize that being a son is to live in response to being loved by Because unless I know what it is to be loved, I can't love anyone else. Unless I know what it is to, for someone to be kind to me all of the time, for someone to be patient with me all of the time, how can I ever be patient with anyone else? How can I ever love and be kind to anyone else unless I am experiencing that regularly? So that's my experience now of living life as a response to being loved by him. And I'm learning to trust him. I never trusted anyone in my life. But I believe that trust is the foundation of sonship. He said he would be a father to me. And I'm taking him at his word. And I'm experiencing him being a father to me. It doesn't mean I don't get frustrated. It doesn't mean I don't have my childish temper tantrums. But he's so gentle and kind in it, even when he's correcting me. There's a kindness and a gentleness and a softness and a graciousness. He's bringing me back to what Adam lost in the garden. And I believe he wants to bring all of mankind back to that place. To be a father to us. You know, Jesus came into this world, not just to die on the cross, but to bring us back into the experience of being loved by the Father. That's why he speaks so much about God the Father, our Father, your Father, my Father. Paul the Apostle speaks about God as a Father almost 50 times in his, his letters. Because he got this gospel from Jesus and he understood that it was about restoring us to relationship with God the Father. See, Jesus knew intimacy with the Father. If, if you, you listen to the episode called um, The Secret Place, I talk about that. I talk about the place of intimacy with God the Father. And Jesus came to bring us back to that place that we might experience what it is to be loved by God the Father. What it is to experience 
being the center of someone so wonderful than the center of their affections. This is what Adam knew in the garden. It's what Jesus knew as he walked through this life, and it's what he came to bring us into. That's why he said, I am going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you also will be. You know, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, the writer says, what has been will be again. Another way of putting it could be as, as it was in the beginning, so it shall be in the end. In the beginning, it was the story of a father with his children. And at the end, the story is going to be all about the father and his children. I want to be part of that story. I want to be part of that story with you. That we know together what it is to be sons and daughters of the living God. Not as a religious statement or, a, or some sort of doctrinal um, badge, but a living reality of love being poured into our beings by the Father of all. He chose us before the foundations of this world to be his. Amen. Thank you. I've been John McDonald. You've been great listeners. Join me again for another episode of the ABBA podcast. Bye.